So last, so we've kind of been doing three different uh, lessons here. We, we start, we've kind of been jumping into this whole series on the family life of a Christian. We started at the very beginning, which is the way to go, and that is to begin with God. And what does God desire for us? What does God desire for our families? And we talked about a little bit of our role, kind of an overarching idea of what our, our role is, and that's to crucify ourselves and our relationships. Um, scriptures tells us to esteem others better than ourselves. That's kind of the core of that. Um, to look towards others before we look to ourselves. And then, now we're walking into, I guess what I've titled, Love God's Perfect Plan. Um, and I, I think this is going to hopefully be an exercise in really practical. I want you to be able to walk out of this room with super practical takeaways that you can implement as soon as you get home. That's, that's kind of the goal. We've talked a little bit more about the maybe the theological structure of why we do what we do. And hopefully tonight, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but tonight we'll get into more, what's the practical takeaways where I can live this thing out? So from the beginning here, and I think you guys will agree with me, in the Bible, love is presented as the key Christian value. I say that because in John's Gospel, not John's Gospel, but in, in 1 John, what is one of the character or the character trait that's ascribed to God? God is love. The very essence, the very nature of God who he is, is that God is love. doesn't even say that God is loving. That's an actionable thing. It literally speaks out that it is who God is. He is love. So in my mind, almost everything else about the character of God flows out of that, that one singular character. So as Christians, that should be the way that we live out. As, that's why I say that it's presented as the key Christian value. It's the most important characteristic of Christian behavior. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 13. If you're there, I'll read verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And then Paul um, continues on, and when we get to verse 13, he kind of wraps up a little bit of this thought, and he says, And now abideth faith, hope, and charity. So three great attributes, right? We are saved by grace through faith. You know, God gives us a measure of faith that we exercise. We... Think about hope that our eternal perspective reminds us that there's something that we're living for and we're living towards. And then he gets to charity or love. And in these three, he says, but the greatest of all of them, of these three different things, is charity. So it's the most important characteristic of Christian behavior. And I would say, practically speaking, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family, don't care so much about your hope and maybe don't care so much about your faith until they, in some tangible way have experienced or watched your love lived out. Is that a fair statement? Would you agree to that? And maybe, maybe, maybe that's why Paul phrases it that way. But love must also be the key value of a Christian home. Nobody wants to live in an unloving home. True? We might find ourselves in those situations from time to time. Your life experience might have brought you through that from time to time. But right now, today, none of us, I don't want to, my wife doesn't want to, your kids don't want to, none of us want to live in an unloving home in an unloving situation. So the primary advice to husbands regarding their wives, let's go to Ephesians. Just kind of laying a little bit of groundwork here. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want you to put eyes on it just so you can get familiar with where it is because a lot of the scriptures we're going to look at tonight are just core what the Bible has to say about marriage relationships and home and family relationships. They're major passages. Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. The end, right? 
Husbands, love your wives. The primary advice to husbands regarding loving their wives in the New Testament is for them to love their wives. Clear as day. Verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife. So here in the very short span, what is written to the church in Ephesus and to us today is husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. I could, you could look at it on your own time, Colossians 3.19 reiterates the same thing. When Christian love is practiced in a home, it will result in a joyous marriage and a joyous home. So here's the big takeaway. If we make loving our family members our aim in life, our lives will be an unending journey of exploration into the beauty of family life. Which is an interesting way to say it, because many times when we think about family life, the adjective beautiful doesn't always come to mind. Yes? Do you agree? It's not a knock on your husband, not a knock on your wife, not a knock on your kids. But sometimes we walk in and do complete and utter chaos. And I look at it and I think, not particularly beautiful in the moment. True? So it certainly is a never-ending exploration. First point, love as an end to itself. Love as an end to itself. Um, go back to 1 Corinthians. Because usually we end up stopping the reading. If you Maybe you had this read at your wedding or... You've heard it read elsewhere. Usually this chapter is wrapped up at the end of 13 in verse 13. But really, Paul continues just a little bit longer into chapter 14. So the greatest of these is charity. And then he says, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. And another way to say that is make love your aim. Pursue it. Pursue after love. Um, If I were to say to you that love is not always a natural occurring thing, would you agree with that? It's not, in fact, many times it's not naturally occurring. So Paul says, even before you begin to desire and pursue spiritual gifts, pursue and desire love first, even in situations where naturally loving doesn't seem to want to take place, or naturally I have an aversion to live out charity, to live out love. So love is an end to itself. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's almost like you're, you're pulling an arrow. That's your target. The target isn't what I get from loving. The target is the act of love itself. Does that make sense? Because we can use love as a manipulation technique, and we'll get into that a little bit. Paul urges the Corinthians, the Corinthians, wow, the Corinthian church, or the Corinthians church, plural, to pursue love in 1 Corinthians 14.1. To make love our aim, love is an end to itself, not simply a means to an end. Homes are not intended to be a place of bargaining and strategizing. Yeah? Um, you find that in our workplaces, we find that the, the politics of things can take over and we can use love almost as a bargaining chip. Well, I'll do this for you if I get this out of it. That's not Christian love lived out. That just the act of living out love in some way, shape or form, whatever it looks like an actionable thing, not a feeling, but acting it out is the end. I've achieved my goal. If I have showed love to someone else, that's, that's the goal. That's what happened. They are designed to be a place where every member is committed, carrying out acts of love, happily given. Think about what that would look like. If every member in a family was mature enough that each person lived out the love of Christ towards each other, and that was the end goal, would everyone's needs get met? Absolutely. We wouldn't be worried about, well, am I going to get what I want out of this? Is this thing going to end for 
what I need or what I was hoping? Am I going to get the status I deserve? Am I going to get whatever it is? It doesn't matter because if everyone is serving one another, everyone's needs gets met, get met, and no one's upset or irritated or mad because, well, I didn't have this or I didn't have that or this didn't work out the way I expected it to. So I'm going to ask this as a rhetorical question. And that my first two questions are going to be rhetorical, meaning I'm not, I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just looking for each of us to maybe be a little bit self-reflective. And that is, honestly reflect on your approach to loving relationships. And I would say, a lot of the way that we view love and the way we, review, we view relationships and what love should look like hinges a lot on how we've experienced love in the past, right? If you grew up in a manipulative home life where somebody was always trying to work an angle to get you to do whatever they wanted you to do, it's easy for us to maybe fall into that same trap. It's also easy to fall in a trap where, you know, I'm constantly trying to gain someone else's love, hoping that if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, maybe, maybe they'll love me this time, right? So we got to kind of remove, we've got to remove those things away from us and look into God's word and say, what, what is love supposed to look like? So honestly, reflect on your approach to loving relationships and think about the way you normally view love and you view relationships. Is it in line with what we just talked about? And more importantly, what the Word of God says, how Paul is opening, opening this up for, for us to see. And secondly, do you view acts of love as a means to achieve your own selfish goals? Now, none of us would say that. Why, yes, I do use love to achieve my own selfish goals, right? No one's going to honestly say that. But practically speaking, how often do I use a situation or, you know, whatever it is? There's so many different things that I could describe that I just don't want to get caught into all of it. But you know what a selfish goal looks like, and you, know, you and I know how to use love to manipulate. Our kids do it all the time, right? Yeah? They don't want to get in trouble. They come over. They give you a hug, you know, that kind of stuff. Achieve your own selfish goals, or do you view them as a gift? So this act of love is simply a gift. It's a means to an end. That's what it is. It is the end. Okay? So you take some time, hopefully tonight or something, and just kind of reflect on that. More importantly, ask God to open your eyes to where there's opportunity to improve. Because the last thing any of us want to do is be the manipulator of our spouses. We don't want to be the manipulator of our children. We don't want to be the manipulator of our extended family. I don't think anybody desires that. If, if Christ is living in us, we want to show the love of Christ. So sometimes that means we go back to our last lesson. And you have to crucify ourselves. Point two. It's difficult to show people love who are never content. Anybody? All God's people said, yeah. <laughs> Um, I love this quote. When one member in, a, in the relationship is willing to love sacrificially, but the other is always seeking their own gain, Christian love faces a severe challenge, doesn't it? I've seen it happen time and time again in uh, marriage relationships where one spouse genuinely wants to work it out. They have difficulties, they have things that need to be you know, fixed, and one genuinely wants and they desire to make it work, and the other one just will not, just will not do it. It almost never, in fact, in my experience in these last 10 years, I have not seen it work yet. Almost 100% of the time, they end up splitting up because two people haven't gotten a glimpse of what true godly character and love looks like. And unless that happens, it's really almost impossible for it to work. Sometimes people are unhappy about things that cannot change. 
making others in the relationship miserable. Um, what, what might be an example of what that looks like? Um, maybe one spouse is upset with the, their economic condition or maybe where they live. They don't like, they don't like that. And the other one can't live, genuinely cannot do anything about it. So they just get more and more miserable because all they hear is this isn't good enough. This isn't, you know, um, what's another situation? Maybe you have a child that's not the brightest, okay? And you can beat that child, not literally beat them, but you can just ingrain it into them and verbally just hound them about the fact that they're not the smartest, okay? Or you, and they, there's just nothing they can do about it. You know, it's not the lack of desire. It's not laziness. There's ways we can push our kids to improve. But, you know, genuinely, God just hadn't gifted them in a certain area. So you can, you can enjoy them for who they are and thank God and let them know that they're important to God regardless, or we can just beat on them, you know, just tell them that they're of no value. So there's probably a million examples that I can give of this, but those are just two that came to mind. Contentment is a vital accompaniment to godliness, resulting in great gain. There's a few different scriptural texts there, but one of them is 1 Timothy where it talks about godliness with, or with contentment is great gain. We must constantly be aware that we love the things of this world too much. Can you go with me to Philippians chapter 3? And I get caught in this just like all you do. You know, we are, we are the most marketed to culture in the history of the world. I saw a statistic years ago that said children that are growing up today by the age of 13 will have been advertised to more than a million times. The world is great at selling us goods and making us discontent with what we have. That's how the system is designed. Make us discontent with what we have, even though it works perfectly fine. You know, it does the job. It, it, it's, it's what we need. But because there's something bigger, better, greater, faster, whatever, and we've been convinced that we need whatever that thing is. So Paul gets to the heart of it in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 and says, Yet doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Does that mean Paul physically lost everything that he had? No, it can't possibly be true. Paul was probably a decent businessman in the fact that he was a tent maker and was able to make a living wherever he went. In fact, he says, I think, to the church in Thessalonica that I do this so that I'm not a burden to the churches. I make a living and so that I can provide for myself so that I'm not a burden to other people. So clearly he had some things, he had some means. So what does he mean when he says, I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ? Did he literally lose everything? No, he's saying I count them as worthless, completely not valuable in, 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 in an eternal perspective. I have them, I'm glad I have them, I utilize them, maybe I use them for Christ, but if I were to have them taken away from me, so be it. It's as if they were something I got right out of the dump, you <laughs> know, in, in the King's English there, right? And he says, I'll give them up as they were just sewage that I might what? Win Christ. And that's, that's the perspective that we have to take is if this thing is taken away from me, will I be upset and angry about it? Or will I view it as, well, I'm really glad I had that for a time. But if it hindered me from winning Christ, so be it. Cast the thing off. That's a powerful perspective. Just kind of frees us from this material material world. And what it also does is it frees us as um, in our relationships to genuinely love one another. Because it's not about how does this how can I leverage this person to get something that I don't have. Yeah? And we can do that 
in our marriage relationships, we can do that with other people. We can do it in the business world. Say, well, how can I manipulate and leverage these people to get what I want? That is the opposite of what we read in Philippians 3 and verse 8. So common causes of discontentment. Here's a few. See if any of them stick with you. Never fully forgiving someone. The failure to offer forgiveness to other people will generally just eat at us and cause us to be discontent. Being unwilling to accept unfortunate circumstances. I put those in quotations because as Christians, we don't really believe in unfortunate situations. Everything is ordained of God. As something God intended as good. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. So that can be a cause of discontent to look back in my life and say, well, that I'm, I'm really mad the way that thing turned out. And I'm just going to be discontent for the rest of my life because of that situation. Failure to crucify self and surrender something that you want to do or receive to God's will. So I, I have this plan for my life. This is what I want. Or I see this thing and I want it. Or there's this behavior in me inherently that I want. And I'm just going to be discontent because I, I fail to realize what Paul said. That just suffer those things as loss so that we can win Christ. No longer be ashamed of your past. Physical appearance, your family background your lack of education, et cetera, et cetera. You and I can live miserable and discontented because we feel like we missed out in life at some point. Maybe my brother, my sister got the better genes. Or, you know, maybe if my, my parents had worked harder, I would have had better opportunities when it came to education. Or, you know, you, you fill in the blank. You know, we can, I think a lot of times we get caught in a trap where we're concerned about what other people think about us when in reality, they're not thinking about us at all. Is that fair? We become discontent with the image that we think other people have of us, when in reality, they have no image of us. Or if they do, it might be positive. We don't know. But we just live completely discontented because we look around and think, well, those people probably look down on me. I had, I had a poor girl when I was teaching a long time ago, um, and her parents just instilled in her that everybody was talking bad about her and looking down on her. And I taught this class in middle school, you know, kids, kids are kind of tough. Those kids didn't care. She wasn't even on their radar. But she had such a complex that she didn't fit in, that they didn't like her, whatever it was, that even if those kids genuinely approached her to try to show actionable love to her, never would have made her content. Because she just was convinced in her mind that all these people are out to get me. Yeah? Um... I, that's that's a tough one to overcome or for other people to overcome refusing to accept your spouse and children i alluded to this a little bit refusing to accept your spouse and children for who god created them to be well if my husband was smarter if my wife was more um i can't think of the word probably shouldn't say it anyways uh <laughs> if my children were you know harder working or whatever you know there's just so many things that we can it's just not fair to impose on other people because to be honest with you, most of the time our blind spot is gigantic. True? Refusing to believe that God truly desires what is best for you and that he will give his best to those who obey him. Let's just cut to the chase. Discontent, in its essence, is a failure to trust God. That's a pretty powerful accusation against God, isn't it? Well, I'm discontent, which means God didn't do something for me that he should have done. That's pretty bold. True? When we, when we look at it in that perspective, um, kind of makes us stop and maybe take a step back and ask genuine forgiveness. 
Yeah. And God can overcome it. So to have a happy home, you must be a happy person. Well, there you go. She just said that. To have a happy home, you must be a happy person. And that's not fake put on jolly happiness, you know? That's genuine happiness rooted in contentment. And, and my, remember, my aim is to show love as a means to itself. If I have showed love to my husband, my wife, my kids, I've achieved my goal for the day. Yeah? And that's where contentment's found. And that's what makes us genuinely happy people, according to the scriptures. It doesn't even mean that they have to respond in kind to the action. It just has to have been done. To have a happy home, you must be a happy person. If you have a bruised and unresponsive spouse, don't give up on loving them. Right? Don't give up on loving them. So here's the question. And again, I said the first two questions were going to be rhetorical questions. I just want you to reflect on them and maybe ask God tonight or in the morning to pray and say, God, what are areas of discontentment that I need to address? What are they? All of us have them. We all have them. We have things that aren't good enough, that are broke down, that we don't like. We have things about ourselves that we don't like. And some things need to be improved on. Other things we have no control over. Move on. Yeah? Um, what are other areas of discontent that, that, you, that we need to address? You, you, know, you ask God to show you what they are because they are legion, right? So many areas of discontentment that we need to address. I mean, the children of Israel were never happy in the wilderness, were they? God gives them manna, it's not good enough. He gives them quail, it's not good enough. He gives them water from a rock, after that, it's not good enough. Yeah? He gives them the law, not good enough. He gives them Moses, not good enough. He gives them judges, not good enough. He gives them kings, not good enough. So, it's something that we're always, always trying to improve on. Point number three. And this last question I'm going to open up to everybody. So I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Point number three, decisive love. Tammy, how you doing? Good. Need somebody? Yeah, Candace. <laughs> Candace, you're up. Sorry. So the last one is decisive love, which means that we're made a decision with which to love. Remember at the beginning, I said loving is oftentimes not a natural occurrence. It's something that we have to purpose to do. So obedience is the key that opens the floodgates to God's divine love. It's not always natural to love. And think of the context of loving our enemies. That is a completely unnatural, unnatural response to love our enemies. But God commands us to love our enemies. But when we make a decisive decision to obey God and love, there's no shortage to the love of God flowing through us. Regardless of the handicap we bring into our marriages, the grace of God is sufficient to heal and enable godly behavior. And the, this, the New Testament uses a, a word um, almost exclusively uh, in, the, in the Greek literature. It's really not used anywhere else in any other kind of book of its time frame called agape. And that's a love that is lived out with absolutely no expectation of anything else in return. A lot of times that's why in the New Testament the, the love towards widows and orphans is seen at such a high level because those are people that if you show an action of love towards them, the assumption is there's no possible way that they can repay you because they have nothing. An orphan has nothing. A widow has nothing. So there's really no preconceived or underlying reason for why I'm showing love to this person. It's simply because God's called me to do it. So how does this kind of agape love work at home? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
First Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. Who then is, nope, that's not right. Is that right? It does not look right. Oh, I'm in chapter 3. First Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Because it doesn't have little heart symbols on the either side of the chapter. Can't be right. 13 and verse 5. Doth not love doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, provoked, and it thinketh no evil. There's a whole lesson in just that verse itself that we can unpack. But straightforward, love is not rude. And I have the propensity, and I'm sure you guys do too, that there's a phrase, something to the effect of familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes we act the most, not necessarily hateful, but just mean and obnoxious to the people that we love the most because we're around them all the time, you know? We almost know that I can get away with saying this. Like, I would never say this in public. I would never say this to a stranger. I would never say this to somebody I don't know very well. But I see you all the time. You're stuck with me. I'm just going to unload. Yeah? But that's not what charity looks like. It says that it doth not behave itself unseemly. It seeks not its own. It's not its own selfishness. It's not easily provoked. Um, how, many how often do your kids easily provoke you? Constantly. Constantly provoked by my children. But true love is not easily provoked. Um, I think there was an illustration in a book that I was reading, but it was something to the effect of a child came home from high school. They walked in the door. Mom was upset for a bunch of different reasons. And they came in all loud and boisterous. And rather than respond unkind, the mom realized, let's take this down a notch. They didn't actually do anything wrong. Let's find out what they're so happy about, why they're acting all crazy. It was because they had just been named to the football team or something to the first time. And think about it in that context. If she had exploded on her kid for really no reason, they hadn't done anything wrong just because they were being loud and she was mad about something else, she would have missed an opportunity to enjoy a genuine accomplishment that had just happened because she just unloaded. I thought that's a really powerful practical example where sometimes we miss out on genuine opportunities to rejoice with our own family members because we just unloaded because we're irritated about something completely unrelated they didn't have anything to do with and had no control over. Yeah? I'm, I'm just glad I'm not, the, I'm not the only one. Okay? So love is not rude, and it, it's lived out with gracious speech. The people that we should speak the most graciously to are those that we live with every single day. They shouldn't be the least, um, uh, the most unlikely people that we, that we speak to. In fact, there's a, there's a story in here. I want to see if I can find it. Um, he's talking about love is not rude. So it says, so we act politely whether we feel like it or not. We do not need to play act at home. So children naturally tend to be impolite when talking to their parents. And parents do the same thing when talking at home. I once read about a pastor's wife who told her husband, let's do an exchange today. Why don't you behave at home the way you behave at church? And behave at church the way you behave at home. Most families need a good dose of Paul's advice. You agree? Just say, hey, let's have a little exercise here. Why don't you act and behave and talk the way you do at church and try that at home? And then the way you behave and act and talk here at home, why don't you try that at church and see how far you get? Yeah? Um, it speaks volumes. Rather than being preoccupied with work, so these are just examples of how agape love works at home. Rather than being preoccupied with work, a husband or wife determines to pre be present while they are at home. That's a decisive, remember, these are not natural things. These are decisive things. I get out of my car, I walk in the door, I decide, I purpose, I am going to do this thing. I don't want to. There's a lot on my shoulders. There's a lot on my mind. There's a lot of things I want to think about. I want to fix right now. But when I walk in those doors, clean slate. Yeah? That's, that's a decisive decision. 
that, that I'm making. Here's another example. Rather than indulging in attention and flirtation from a coworker, a spouse is constrained by love reminding them of their covenant relationship with their spouse. Married 10, 15, 20, 30 years, some, un, some person you don't know very well starts showing an interest in you. You, you cut it off immediately because you realize, no, 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 no. That's, I have no part in this. I have no place in this. My responsibility is my covenant relationship with my wife. So you shut it down immediately. That's a decisive decision because that person being interested in you and no one's been interested in you since you were in high school suddenly makes you feel good about yourself, right? But that's just a trap of the devil, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry. It's just the way it works. Once you get married, no one's interested in you anymore. And that's a good thing. Reminding them of their covenant relationship with their spouse. The fourth one, love is patient and considers others above themselves. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity puffs not itself or it's vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't care about itself. It cares about other people. That's the core of it. It's a means to an end. If I have achieved in showing love to my husband, to my wife, to my children, I have won today. I've achieved my goal. Loving people at home will be a challenge. I didn't bring you all here just to tell you that because you could have told me. Loving people at home will be a challenge, but we will continue learning as long as we live. Failure to live out love towards our families until the very end makes us worse than an unbeliever. Go with me to 1 Timothy 5.8. And this goes really into our conversation we just had about you know, different marriages that we've realized. So 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, But if any provide not for his own, meaning his own family, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than what? An infidel, an apostate unbeliever, a man who claims Christ, who doesn't provide for the means of his own home until the very, very end, is worse than an unbelieving apostate heretic um that's pretty sobering thought isn't it so don't leave here panicked that i'm not sure if i'm living out christian love like i'm supposed to but just every day ask god show me in what way can i live out in an actionable way love and just be happy be content with the fact that i lived it out regardless of what i got out of it what their response was any of that to just live it out and be happy with the outcome that's the only thing I can control, isn't it?